Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. I don't know about the rest of you, but there are many things in life that bring me to the verge of yelling something like this. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Right? Who's with me? For me, some of those things include things like weeding the yard, laundry, um, washing your car in Washington, right? You do it, and the next day it rains, or a bird takes care of business, uh, or cleaning a house with small children. I honestly feel sometimes like somebody is playing a prank on me inside of our house. Because I will walk by our table and see toys, crayons, whatever it might be, pick them up, put them on the table to be put away, and no more than two minutes later, how did they get on the ground again? I, I think, where, okay, where's the camera? Who's watching? Because it feels like this is uh, constantly happening and somebody is getting a good laugh out of it. But who's, who's with me on this, right? Yes, thank you. Uh, but things like this can cause us to ask the question, why bother? It's just going to become undone in a matter of minutes, hours, or weeks. And in a similar fashion, the, Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews highlights today in our passage how the sacrificial system was never, never actually accomplished anything long-lasting. Conversely, we'll see today that the once and for all sacrifice of Christ is the catalyst for spiritual growth in the life of believers. And if you have been with us throughout our study in Hebrews, we, uh, it has become unmistakable that the theme of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. He's better than the angels. He's better than the prophets. He's better than Moses. His priesthood is, priesthood is better than Aaron's priesthood. Uh, his new covenant is better than the old covenant that they never actually could fulfill anyway. And his blood is better than the blood of bulls and goats. And at every turn and in every way, Jesus is better. Last week, in the second half of chapter 9, the author focuses on how the sacrifices of Jesus, or the, sorry, the sacrifice of Jesus is better than, the, the, than bulls and goats because it secures an eternal redemption and inher- an eternal inheritance, purity of conscience, and forgiveness of sins. And the author then takes a slight turn here in chapter 10 to talk about the effectiveness of Christ's sacrifice. So our main idea today is this. Christ is better. His once and for all sacrifice satisfies, it sets aside, and it sanctifies. A little alliteration to help us remember our points today. So once again, his once and for all sacrifice satisfies, it sets aside, and it sanctifies. We'll spend a little bit uh, more time on the first point, but before we do, um, let's read Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 to 18.
For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are ordered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have, excuse me, and by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for, uh, for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, awaiting from that time until his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their heart, hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sins. <clears throat> So before we get into our three points, uh, I want to answer a very important question or open up a very important question that as we work through Hebrews, we should constantly be asking ourselves, in what way does this section appeal to the Hebrews to persevere? This is the purpose of the author writing to these people. So we have to ask, what is he doing? What is he saying that would appeal to the Hebrews to persevere? Now, for us, we're 2,000 years removed and a very different culture. And so it's really hard for us to grasp uh, how the, the same level uh, of, a, of power that, this, that these arguments would have in the lives of Hebrews. We have to remember that the sacrificial system was the way in which these Hebrews dealt with guilt. It's the way that they dealt with their sin. It's the way that they drew near to God. It was central to their life. Everything revolved around it. So rejecting this system, was, even, uh, rejecting this system for them likely meant that they would face reproach, rejection, alienation, scorn, disgrace as outcasts from their families, their religions, their communities. So it cost them a lot. And to, 
to, to take that away meant a lot. They were at a crossroads, so would they return to Judaism or they remain loyal to Jesus as their king? So the author of Hebrews then appeals to the essence and nature of the sacrificial system. That they, these sacrifices were insufficient, that they were ineffective in removing their guilt. So with those truths being established, will they return to that which they know is ineffective? Will they return to that which they know cannot cleanse them from sin? And that which actually leaves them in their sin? Or will they persevere and remain faithful to Christ who is better? So our first point, Christ is better. His once and for all sacrifice satisfies. It satisfies the need for any more sacrifices. We are introduced in this passage to the need for a greater, a, a greater sacrifice. And where do we see this in the text? We actually see it all throughout our passage, so we'll highlight a couple of them. Verse 1, the law has but a shadow, not the substance, of the good things to come. Christ is the substance. Christ was the point of the law. The law was pointing to Christ, and he was the fulfillment. And for the Hebrews to choose... The sacrificial system would be for me to be up here, for me to pull out from behind here a picture of my wife and say, oh, isn't she just so great? I love her. I don't know what I would do without this picture of her. And all the while, she was actually standing right here looking at me confused. And all of you would be equally as confused and be like, man, she's right there. Like, why are you so focused on this picture of her? Like, you've got her right in front of you. And same for the Hebrews. He's appealing to them, saying, the real deal is here. The ultimate sacrifice has been provided. Uh, And so he shows them that the, the law is purely a shadow of the ultimate thing, which is Christ's sacrifice. Moving on, verse 1 and 2 says, The law can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So there's limitations. There's things that it cannot do. Verse 4, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Verse 5, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Verse 11, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. So we see this need for a greater sacrifice. And then moving on in our passage, we're now introduced to the provision of a better sacrifice. That starts in verse 5 to 7. Let's read that again. It says, consequently, when Christ came into the world... Through his incarnation, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So we're introduced to this provision, uh, and we're done so through a quote from Psalm 40, verses 6 6 to 8. And it's applied to Jesus in his incarnation. 
And it's an interesting side note that if we actually go back and look at Psalm 40, verse 6 to 8, it is apply, um, we'll see that there is a, a difference in the wording. You can see this up here. And it says in Psalm 40, verse 6, the verse says this, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. And then we look at Hebrews 10, verse 5, Sacrifice and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. So what gives for this difference? How do we explain this? The writer of Hebrews was quoting from and acquainted with what's called the Septuagint. And the Septuagint is a fancy name for the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was in Hebrew. So when you translate something, there is an interpretive measure that is taking place of finding the right words to communicate the meaning. And what's likely happening here is that the translators of the Septuagint are, con- are making a connection between open ears, uh, which signify a readiness to hear and obey the will of God. And we see an example of that in Isaiah verse I think it's actually 50. Sorry, that's my fault. Chapter 50, verse 4 to 6. The verse is correct. Um, Where God gave his son a prepared body that the son might serve God and fulfill his will on earth. So these open ears indicate a body that's ready for service. So again, we're introduced to Christ, uh, who is the provision of a better sacrifice. And we see this reiterated again uh, back in Hebrews chapter 10. In verse 10, it says this, And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Moving on, verse 12, But when Christ had offered himself for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet. In verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And here's the, here's the truth of the matter. The sacrificial system was never intended to be the end. And it might, this might be an easy pill for us to swallow, right? Like we, our lives, our culture are not centered around a sacrificial system. But for the Hebrews, this was a really hard pill to swallow, it, made, it meant great sacrifice. It was taking what the Hebrews valued and making it obsolete. This is what you actually, what you might call divine planned obsolescence. If, planned obsolescence, um, if you don't know what that is, it's when a company uses various strategies to make a product seem undesirable, useless, or unwanted. And we see it everywhere uh, in our world today. Um, and there are many ways in which, which they do that, uh, but one of the original uh, uh, people that implemented planned obsolescence is a guy named Alfred P. Salone. And he faced a dilemma of how do I get people to buy new cars uh, when they already had one? And his answer was the model and year system, right? Planned obsolescence. Cars don't need technological improvements to justify the release of a new model. They just needed a facelift. They just needed to look different. 
And he, so he implemented this on the 1923 Chevrolet. It was the same old car underneath, but thanks to style obsolescence, the change uh, in its look, the new model was more desirable. The old was undesirable. And we experience the same things uh, all the time with our phones, our printers, our appliances. They make them difficult to repair or expensive. They reduce their lifespans. And the sacrificial system was what we might say is divine or God-ordained planned obsolescence. However, instead of a scam or a corporate money grab, it's actually the means of God's blessing on his people. It's actually the means of his kindness being extended to his people. God never planned on the sacrificial system being the end. In fact, as we said earlier, it, the point of it was to point to Jesus. The purpose of it was to anticipate the coming of a greater sacrifice. The New Testament affirms this over and over again that the law was never uh, intended to be the end. And yet, even though the New Testament makes this clear, that this was the point, that it was fulfilled in Christ, and that his sacrifice is is enough, over and over again, we run back to things to deal with our sin, that cannot actually take away our sin or our guilt. We try a myriad of ways to remove our guilt and sin and fail terribly. Uh, before Christmas, our uh, road group finished up a book by Dane Orland called Deeper. It's about growth in, in the Christian life. And he included a, a quote that I thought explained this articulated this really well, and I, I wanted to share it with you. It's up here. It says this, In Holy Week of 2009, the Boston Globe ran a story with images of various Christian communities around the world celebrating Monday Thursday. One particularly arresting image was from the city of San Fernando in the Philippines, where several Roman Catholic penitents were photographed as they knelt before a church shirts off and backs bloodied, flagellating themselves in an attempt to atone for their sins. He goes on to say this, I wonder if we really take to heart what is wrong about such a practice. Is it not a constant temptation for Western Christians to engage in such self-flagellation psychologically and emotionally, if if not physically? What is your response when you are aware of your sin? If you're like me, you know that Christ died for that and that you're grateful, but just to show how grateful you are or to seal the deal, you do a bit of psychological self-inflicted pain just to top it off. Not, of course, to self-consciously add to Christ's work, heaven forbid, just to let him know how much you care, to make it clear that you are a serious Christian. Nothing physical, just a bit of extra externalized obedience or formal service or sucking on the guilt. 
I'm sure that many of you have been in a, the same or a similar place at some point in your life where you beat yourself up mentally for that sin that you repeatedly struggle with. You, or maybe you're like others that spiral into a morbid introspection and self-loathing or habitual self-condemnation. Or on the flip side, maybe instead you just distract yourself uh, with entertainment, social media. You decide to exercise extra hard, make yourself pay, no pain, no gain. You, you, or you just hide it and you suppress it and you move on. And the fear and the guilt and the shame are not actually dealt with. Regardless of how you respond, though, these are all repeated attempts to atone for, justify, or deal with your sin without God. And we're falling back into the same practices as the Hebrews, right? Trying to deal with our sins in a way that can never actually take them away, which is the sacrificial system. We don't need to beat ourselves up anymore. We do not have to atone for our own sins. Christ has already done that. One of the greatest reasons for our misplaced or excessive guilt is our failure to embrace the once and for all sacrifice of Christ. I mean, didn't Christ say, come to me, all ye who are uh, weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The author of Hebrews counsels and shepherds us to understand that Christ's once and for all sacrifice satisfies the need for any more sacrifices or attempts to deal with sin without God. Point number two, Christ is better. His once and for all sacrifice satisfies and it sets aside. So where do we see that in our text? Verse 10, and by that will, this will is referring to the will of God that Christ came to accomplish, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Now, you might be thinking, wait, 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 wait. The second point is that Christ's sacrifice sets aside, but verse 10 says that we've been sanctified, and actually his third, third point is that we've been sanctified. Uh, now, sanctified is actually, if we look, remember in our whole passage, is used two different times in our passage, in verse 10 and in verse 14. And if we look deeper into each of those words, we'll see that they're being, they're being used in two different ways. When we typically think of sanctification uh, or the word sanctify, we typically, what comes to our mind is what theologians call progressive sanctification, right? This is the progressive growth in godliness or Christ-likeness, hence the name progressive sanctification. We'll discuss that later, but, uh, but this is not the, the, the form of the word that is being used here. Uh, scripture, however, predominantly uses the word to be sanctified in relation, uh, and similar words like holy or consecrated uh, in what theologians call positional sanctification. So we have positional and progressive. 
okay? And positional sanctification the, uh, refers to something being set apart or set aside from common use. And these words help explain how people or things could receive the holiness necessary to draw near to a holy God. So how could they? They must be sanctified. They must be separated from common use. And to be sanctified indicated a special or unique status with God and a unique relationship with God. Here's a few examples. The priests, to draw near in their uh, temple service, must be made holy. Or an instrument of the temple to be used had to be consecrated. Um, The sacrifices of the temple were to be holy. The people of Israel, to be God's chosen people, were set apart from the nations. And the New Testament writers actually use, uh, use uh, the word sanctify, holy, consecrate in similar ways to describe believers, to describe the church as what we are and what we have in Christ. That there is a unique or special, a changed status and relationship that we enjoy in Christ. And that's how this word's being used. So as I mentioned, sanctified is being used in two different ways. How do we know that? And we know that by looking into the grammar. So let's geek out really quickly on how we can see that. So in English, we read this, and we see that it's a past tense passive, right? So have been uh, showing passive, uh, sanctified past tense. But in the Greek, it takes it to the next level. The, the Greek uh, uses what's called a perfect passive. And a perfect passive is defined as this. It's an action done to someone or something. It's completed at a specific point in the past, and its results continue to the present and are often permanent. Now, here's a quick, like, anti-example of this perfect passive so I remember a few years back it, uh, hearing stories about travelers who would go to the airport and they'd show up at their gate only to find out that their seat had been given away, right? They had bumped, been bumped to a different flight involuntarily, though the price had been paid for their ticket, the reservation had been made, the reservation was not kept, it was lost, it was given away. I remember hearing this uh, often. On the contrary, when the Greek perfect uh, perfect tense is used, it communicates that uh, when the price has been paid, the reservation has been made, uh, it will not be given away. It cannot be lost. And the author of Hebrews is saying that Christ's sacrifice, that in his sacrifice, our position, our status of being sanctified, being... uh, by Christ, is being maintained. It has been attained, and it's being maintained. It cannot be taken away. And and remember, the mind of the Hebrews is that the status of something being holy, aside from God, uh, was something that had to be restored through sacrifices. But if you have trusted in Christ, he has made you holy. At a specific point in the past, That's on the cross. 
with results that continue to the present. That's right now. And the results are permanent. They cannot be taken away. In Christ, you belong to God. You have been set apart for him. And this permanent position, this permanent status change is reaffirmed throughout our passage elsewhere. Looking in verses 11 through 13, we see a contrast between the priests of the Old Testament who daily offer the same sacrifices that cannot take away sins, contrasted with Christ who offered a single sacrifice and sat down at the right hand of God. The fact that Jesus sat down after he ascended to the Father is proof that his work is completed. The priests of the tabernacle uh, and the temple were never done. And we, a few chapters earlier, we heard about them, that they constantly need to, needed new priests because they would die. But this constant repetition is proof that their sacrifices did not take away sins, and our passage tells us that it was actually a yearly reminder of their sins. But Christ offered a sacrifice, one sacrifice, and then sat down. His job was complete. Now here's the point, okay? We geeked out, we learned our grammar. Here's the point, that our status, your status of being sanctified permanently, being made holy permanently is evidence that your guilt has been removed and we have a conscience uh, and we have confidence to draw near to God. Last week in chapter 9, verse 9, it says, gifts and sacrifices were offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. In verses 1 and 2 this week, uh, it says, the law can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. If they could, they would, would they not have been ceased to be offered since wor- worshipers having been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins? The law and its sacrifices cannot perfect your conscience. But contrasted, Christ's sacrifice in verse 14 says, by a single uh, offering, he has perfected for all, times those who, for all time those who are being sanctified. In a very objective, in a definitive way, in the eyes of God, Christ has perfected you because he has removed your guilt and he has cleansed your conscience. And there is zero need for us to feel the guilt of our sins anymore. Why? Because we have access to the removal of guilt. As followers of Christ, we have access to the removal of guilt for real sin, right? Past, present, future, even for that sin that you repeatedly struggle with, right? There's no need to prove or try to atone for your worthiness of the forgiveness of sins or the removal of your guilt. And as followers of Christ, we have access to the removal of the feelings of guilt too, right? We can often feel guilty for things that aren't actually sin, Maybe we say no to somebody, even though we felt like, maybe I should have said yes. I work too much. I'm not there for my, I feel like I'm not there for my children, my spouse, or my parents enough. Feel guilty for taking some time for myself to rest a little bit. I feel like I'm just not doing enough, or I can't get, quite get ahead. I'm just a failure, right? 
But we must remember that Christ's once and for all sacrifice has set us aside from the world to be his, and no measure of guilt or feelings of guilt takes that away. And since nothing can take that away, the implication actually for this, we'll, we'll dig into next week, so I don't want to step on any toes, is found in chapter 10, verse 19 uh, through 22. We'll read real quickly just a, a snapshot of that. It says, therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy places of God by the blood of Jesus, right? The once and for all sacrifice of Christ, which is effective, perfectly effective, what does it let us do? It gives us confidence. So let us draw near with a true heart full of, full, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And our third and final point, Christ is better. His once and for all sacrifice satisfies, it sets aside, and now finally it sanctifies we see this in uh, verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So remember last time we talked about positional sanctification. Now we're looking at progressive sanctification, the uh, progressive growth in godliness or Christ-likeness, what we might refer to us as getting better or being better. But if you are anything like me, the discussion about spiritual growth is similar to discussions about uh, praying enough. It's similar to discussions about flossing my teeth or exercising. You can always do it more. It feels like it's never enough, right? You know you can do better, that you should do better. And what does it typically result in? It typically results in you feeling guilty, discouraged, or unmotivated, right? Anybody with me here and there from time? Yeah, okay. Um, but how are we to grow? How are we to be sanctified in a holy way or in a healthy way? Verse 14, the context for this growth, for this being sanctified, you'll notice is that he has perfected you. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That we might, and it is essential for us to understand that the context for our progressive sanctification is our positional sanctification. That you have been sanctified and you are being sanctified. And, and what we see in this is that we are to be what we already are. We are to be what we have been made. And we again, we see this in the grammar. When we dig into this, we see this, uh, this present tense, passive uh, voice that we are actually are being sanctified, right? That means it is actually a work of God in you. Sanctification happens as we embrace and enjoy the full and final forgiveness of our sins in Christ's once and for all sacrifice. It is a work of God. It is not a matter of us pulling up our spiritual bootstraps. 
and getting to work. It's a matter of gazing upon the work of Christ. And we actually see this in 2 Corinthians 3.18. It says, And we all, with an unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. God does this work. And Dane Orland actually has another quote from the same book that I want to read for you uh, that, again, illustrates this point. And he says this, you can't crowbar your way, uh, your way into change. You can only be melted. Reflection on the wonder of the gospel, that we are justified simply by looking away from ourselves and to the finished work of Christ on our behalf. It softens our hearts. The labor of sanctification becomes wonderfully calmed. And the gospel is what changes us. And only it can, because the gospel itself is telling us what is true of us before we even begin to change. And no matter how slowly our change comes. So if you feel stagnant in your faith, bored with Bible study, slow to serve, obligated in your obedience, indifferent about your salvation... The way to grow is not by mustering up some energy or motivation. It is not to focus on your failures, but to fill your heart and your mind with the love of God in Christ. Just recently, a couple weeks ago, we watched, our family watched uh, the great 90s classic, The, the Little Rascals. <laughs> and there's, if you've seen the movie, there's a scene with Alfalfa, you know, the guy with the little hair. He is not supposed to be thinking about his beloved Darla, right? And what is he doing? He's sitting there with a piece of paper, writing, I will not think of Darla. I will not think of Darla. I will not think of Darla. Right? How often do we do that in in an attempt to grow spiritually? I will not think that mean thing about my coworker. I will not think that mean thing about my coworker. Or, I will not be frustrated with my kids. I will not be frustrated with my kids. I will do better. I will be better. Don't do the, I won't do this thing I know I shouldn't. Don't do this thing I know I shouldn't. And actually, when you are doing this, what are you filling your heart and your mind with? The very, that very thing. And then, What ends up happening is we end up being filled with guilt, fear, and shame. And then our our motivation ends up, I mean, these things end up motivating us. And then we end up in a cycle much like the Hebrews with the sacrificial system. Sin, guilt, make a sacrifice. Hold out as long as I can. Sin, guilt, make a sacrifice. Hold out as long as I can. And it begins to feel much like what we described at the beginning of why bother? It feels like pulling weeds or doing laundry or keeping a house clean with kids. Why bother? We're discouraged. But if you want to be sanctified, if you want to grow, if you want to be made more like Christ, we must remember and embrace and gaze upon the once and for all sacrifice of Christ that he, that accomplished this forgiveness in the very first place. We have to set our eyes on Christ. Sam Storm uh, notes from this section this. He says, and we'll end with this. The single most debilitating or corrupting factor 
that threatens to undermine your relationship with God and your joy in the Christian life is your failure to understand, embrace, and enjoy the full and final forgiveness of your sins. Christ is better. His once and for all sacrifice satisfies, it sets aside, and it sanctifies. May we have the boldness to persevere and to approach God because, our, because Christ once and for all sacrifice that satisfies our need for any more sacrifices or attempts to pay for our sins, that permanently sets us uh, as his people apart that belong to him, and that changes us as we embrace the full and final uh, work of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the work of Christ on the cross for us. May you show us the ways in which we are depending on other things to deal with our sin instead of running to you, our Father, who has provided all that is necessary to remove our guilt and to change our status from enemy to child, to become your people. And God, help us to be uh, just a source of light and a source of this message in the world around us. God, that is awash with guilt. Lord, let us know the freedom that you have accomplished for us in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.